I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. received some very reliable listener data that <laughs> people are writing fanfic about themselves. Amazing. The average American is infatuated with themselves USA. and will write USA. USA. <laughs> so Amazing. thank you guys for listening and for sending in that info. It, it just really like, I don't know, tickles my peach that mm-hmm. people are doing this it's so cool i love it I, that's amazing we should write fanfic about us oh absolutely um absolutely amazing <laughs> um that's great i love that people are writing fanfic about themselves i'm like that's self-love mm-hmm. it really and is self-harm oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> putting yourself in angsty situations just to be like let's see how i would react just send your therapist the tags <laughs> that you decided to put for your fanfic and i then do they'll tell my out. therapist about writing fanfic so yeah she would be like unsurprised mm-hmm. <laughs> she'd be like well that's the natural next step for like, you of course <laughs> She's like, so um, let's meet like three times a week. Um, <laughs> I think we need to up it just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> All right, guys. Welcome to the pod. Uh, this is the podcast Rejects. Of course, I'm Spencer sitting with Alaska. What's up? And we are continuing our series yes. on fan fiction. So we're moving into the 1900s today um, to finally get to the actual word fanfic. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's taken us a little bit. We had to get in some good history. Um this history is thick. It's, She's it's got a lot thick. of info. But there's so much. You know, you just got to understand the full lore mm-hmm. to get there. Um, so 1900s, obviously we have, and this is kind of late 1800s as well, um, printing becomes a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, because for most of human history to write and publish something, you just had to, like, rewrite it by right. hand, and then printing presses changed the game, yeah. um, and they became cheaper and easier to use. And so in the 1900s, though, that really uh, shifted the way that we saw fanfic being released. And the other thing that really increased, uh, really led to fan fiction and fan writing was an increase in literacy among the middle class. Oh, yeah, true. And... Really, what we're seeing in the rise in the middle class in general is a change in the way that people think about marriages and relationships, because Mm. for a lot of history, relationships were just like family partnerships, um, especially among like higher classes where it is about like combining assets. Right. It's Um, all lineage and shit. Right. But when the Industrial Revolution happens, we have a lot more jobs where people are just earning normal wages and are not super rich and a lot of times they are changing into these relationships where they're choosing partners um and so a lot of these early ideas came directly from this industrial revolution so early ideas meaning like uh the trope of like oh the best husband is a reformed rake so like that sort of thing so Mm -hmm. that all kind of ties into the industrial revolution right 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 and this, again, this is also, like, sort of happened in the 1800s, but um, really was in the early 1900s was the invention of the fanzine 
or right. fan magazine. Mm-hmm. So fanzines are fan-made, non-professional, and non-official publications produced by enthusiastic fans of a particular cultural phenomenon, and they publish it for the pleasure of others, other fans. Sick. It, they, you know, were published in tons of different topics, but in the 1930s, there was a huge rise in the creation of fanzines with science fiction, so the rise in, like, science fiction. Right, 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 that makes sense. And also, we saw the rise of science fiction amateur press associations as well, which happened Mm. in the 30s. So these sort of coincided to build these huge fandoms before fandoms even existed. Oh, The first use of the word fan fiction also was in the 30s. It was in 1939 in a fanzine called Le Zombie. Oh, Le Zombie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The quote is, and Milt must be congratulated on the story. It is definitely pro and not fan fiction. So fan fiction in this context was referring to science fiction written by amateurs. Mm. And so like professionals would write pro fiction rather than oh. fan fiction. Um, so obviously it had sort of like a negative connotation. Right, right off the um, bat. In the 40s and the 50s, this sort of shifted. There were like, we have some definitions that were published of fan fiction where it's like, it's incorrect to refer to it as fan, like ri- like science fiction written by fans. And it actually means fiction that includes real people, which I, I don't really understand that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, words change. We got change with them. Uh, but it, it always sort of had a negative connotation from the get-go. Right, um, right. But for different reasons. I also don't really understand how they differentiated between uh, amateur and non-amateur writing during this time. Yeah. Because it would all be published together, like, in these, like, fanzines. Right. Unless it was, like, a standalone book or something. So... I don't know how they differentiated. Maybe it was just like, I like this, so it's pro-vision. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Maybe it started from a place of, like, the person who wrote it also writes for money, so it's automatically pro because they are a professional writer. Maybe. I don't know. But it seems like a, a, oh, I like it, so it's pro, and I don't like it, so it's fan. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So prior to the 1960s, fanzines were pretty much exclusively written and published by men. Oh, Um, Women were kind of part of it, but, uh, you know, it was heavily dominated by men. Mm. And these fanzines would, like, contain fiction, but it wasn't really a common thing. So Mm. even when they were in these, like, they were published within these niche interests, like, fiction sometimes would show up, but it it wasn't really the purpose of fanzines. There was a lot of other different things that they were publishing. Oh, okay. Uh, meta aspects to it. But in the 1960s is when we have a huge switch where fanzines are written and published mostly by women. Oh. And the reason for this is Star Trek. Star Trek! <laughs> Star Trek has entered the playing field. So Star Trek was a TV show that came out in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to be popular, like immensely popular with fans, mm-hmm. but not so popular that it stayed on the air and yeah. was canceled relatively quickly, although mm-hmm. it's obviously had reboots and extras and stuff throughout the years. And it seems like the fandom was men and women, but women really loved Star Trek. Like yeah. they were very into Star Trek. And so all of the fanzines that were published that were like media related fanzines were largely written and published by women, you know, edited by women as well. Mm-hmm. I think like Something that's interesting about the Star Trek fandom is the fact that, like, the reason 
it became so popular with women is because this was a time where a lot of women did not go to work. Yeah. And they would play during the day, and so they would be watching it. And it, like all things, was like women fans so it wasn't serious until men became interested in it right yeah <laughs> um now star trek is like the ultimate like dude bro thing oh, like it's very yeah. hard to be into star trek and not be bombarded uh by people who like want to quiz you on things star yeah. wars is the same way but i feel like star trek is like somehow worse yeah it's like um, very much like name five of their songs like name yes. five of their episodes whatever right yeah. there there's definitely like a crowd of people now who are angry at you as a woman for being interested in star trek right when um, it's like we were the ones that gave it like any sort of deference like right. at all <laughs> Um, So the Star Trek community is often credited with the beginning of modern fan fiction, and really for good reason, because there was such an intense love for this series that fan fiction, like, exploded. Yeah. So this is a quote from Fic, the book that I will be referencing throughout that I uh, talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. Star Trek was the first fandom where fan fiction became so central it could sustain multiple fanzines devoted exclusively to Fic. With Star Trek, fan fiction becomes a true collective enterprise, the kind of super social community affair that it is today. Hmm. So fan fiction was, you know, expected within this fandom. Yeah. The first, like, modern concept of fan fiction that we really see happened in 1967 after the second season of Star Trek Air. So this is when the first issue of the fanzine Spockanalia Oh. was released, which is edited by women. Mm-hmm. Was edited by women. It's not still being published. Right. Um, <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah. It was um, definitely, the. I feel like, the most well-known fanzine of the time. There were tons and tons and tons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Spockanalia was a huge one. I mean, it's um, a sick name. It's a great name. <laughs> um, so inside this fanzine would be, like, fan works related to or in celebration of Spock, hmm. um, as well as, like, fanfics. The creator of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, uh, really loved the fans of his show, just generally, but also would, like, encourage their creations, and he loved, like, all of the fanzines, especially Spockanalia. He made Spockanalia required reading for new writers on the show. Um, Hell yeah. And for anyone who made decisions on show policy, they had to read Spockanalia. Hell yeah. (laughs) King shit. Yep. Um, He even, like, contributed a letter to the second issue of Spockanalia. And in the letter, he ended it by saying, Star Trek needs fans like you. (laughs) Oh, wait, I'm going to cry. That's so sweet. I'm like, he really had, like, a love affair with his fans. Like, he really loved his fans. He um, 1976, like almost 10 years later, he said that fan fiction was the highest compliment and the greatest repayment that fans could ever give us. Absolutely. So yeah. I would call this the right opinion. <laughs> yes, this is the absolute right opinion. Like, no, nothing wrong here. Yeah. I was like, for me, this is how, like, you keep a fandom alive. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously we're going to see a wide variety of opinions on fan fiction by creators. Um, And Gene Roddenberry is not the standard. He's definitely not. He's an outlier. I'm like, if anything, he kind of gave people unreasonable expectations for what to expect from creators in the future Mm -hmm. um, because he was so like into it. He loved it. He had no problem with it. He, you know, obviously was reading fanfic at a great time, which I think is really cool. Like, Seems like a really good dude, honestly. Yeah. And I'm like, it makes sense that this had such like a long lifespan. And the reason that it was brought up again and again, um, and I think it's because this sort of fan interaction was heavily encouraged. Absolutely. By 1973, 90% of the authors in the Star Trek fan fiction world were women. Wow. 
So women were writing hella fanfic. And <laughs> we're it just was like cranking that shit women. out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is like kind of a weird side tangent, but it was directly contrasted against Doctor Who, which also started around this time and oh. was a huge cultural phenomenon in the UK. Right. Because Doctor Who had fanzines just as Star Trek did, uh, but they were largely written and edited by men. Uh, because women were outnumbered three to one in the Doctor Who fandom in its early days. Wow. Um, however, they did publish fanzines that had fanfic, oh. uh, even though it was like a large male audience. Some of these fanzines did include fanfic written by Peter Capaldi, who became the 12th Doctor. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> and also published other works by um, Stephen Moffat, who is the current showrunner. Um, oh. Or at least was. Yeah. Um, so... Pretty cool that those they like those people who would become involved in Doctor Doctor Who decades later were a part of the fandom. So it's, it's very unrelated to the Star Trek history, but I thought that was kind of a fun fact. That is a fun fact. So Star Trek um, was kind of like an insulated community, mm. especially when you compare it to the rest of the science fiction community. It was kind of it kind of faced like a rejection as a fandom from broader science fiction culture. Oh. Um, especially from like literary fans. So people who were very interested in sci-fi in a print form mm. would look down on what they called media fans. They found them <laughs> superficial and, you know, stupid and were, you know, dismissing them often on account of the fact that there was mostly women who was interested in it. And I it think feels this, the same yeah. as like the Marvel people. <laughs> For real. Um, I think this is like, Again, like you said, this is something we're going to see over and over again. But I think that this is what really fosters like fandom culture, but fan fiction as well within that, where it is the like rejection by society at large. Right. So you're getting sort of a counterculture feel to this group of people that all have the same interest as you. It really like connects people within fandom. For sure. As far as fan fiction within the Star Trek community, um, from the get-go, fan fiction was following trends that we would see today. So hmm. within Star Trek, if you've never seen it, there are, you know, a, a whole plethora of characters. The main, I, I guess I would call him sort of a main character. Um, it is definitely an ensemble cast, but sort of the main character was Captain Kirk. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely the character that the writers expected the women to, like, fawn over. So right. he was very much, like, conventionally attractive and ladies man kind of character within the context of the movie uh we definitely see the like bringing back of the like perfect husband would be the refined you know reformed rake or mm -hmm, whatever mm -hmm. um so i think that this was very much supposed to be the love interest but as we see when we look at the names of fanzines um spock was the big pool and I mean, this is something Leonard Nimoy could get for it for sure <laughs> like without a doubt and it's like this is something we're going to see again and again, too, where it's like, it's not always the obvious choice that is the one that people attach themselves to. Women mm -hmm. were, like, sort of interested in Kirk, but it seems like they were most interested in Kirk and the way that his relationship was with Spock, like their interactions, their friendship. Right. Uh, but they really, they really loved Spock. Like, Spock was the fan favorite. I think also, like... Kirk and Spock's relationship within it was a very fascinating subject for viewers because Kirk had this sort of like 
you know, womanizing relationship with women, obviously. Um, he always had, like, a new romantic interest, so I think that was very common in the show. But with Spock, like, with his friendship with Spock, it was sort of a complex, long-term uh, friendship that was built on, like, mutual respect and understanding. Hmm. And so I think people really, fans found this really interesting, and especially women, where there weren't women characters that would be considered equals. Mm -hmm. And so that relationship couldn't really be explored uh, even on a friendship level for women, like put, you know, about other women characters because women came and go as far as their interactions with Captain Kirk. um, And the side characters were like not really um, on equal footing as it was with Spock, where it was considered, they were considered equals. So because of this, this whole um, exploration of a relationship of equals, we get the first ever slash fic. So (laughs) Star Trek was the first fandom ever to uh, come up with the word slash to refer to fan fiction. This was in 1974. It was the, um, it was published in an adult fanzine called Grup. I don't know if that's related to the show. I have not seen (laughs) um, Star Trek, so I'm not sure, but I'm like, okay. Uh, So Slash within fanfic is a genre of fanfiction that focuses on the romantic and or sexual relationship between fictional characters of the same sex. Uh, Oh, okay. So the Star Trek community would write fanfic that would be K slash S or Kirk slash Spock, which would be opposed to K and S. Uh, which would refer to friendship. Got it. So they were the first ones to use slash to indicate romantic and sexual relationships. Now slash is still a term that is like, you know, refers to same sex pairings. Mm -hmm. But as we'll see much, much later, most of the tags on modern fan fiction websites will have slashes for romantic pairings. Okay. But slash as a term, like capital S slash fanfic is fan fiction between two same-sex characters. Mm -hmm. So whenever this first, you know, came about in the 1970s, it was pretty racy uh, because homosexuality was considered a mental illness by mainstream psychology. Yep. Up until 1973, which was when it was officially removed from the DSM Mm -hmm. um, as an illness, it was very much not accepted. um, (laughs) Definitely not homosexuality was just like very taboo and then the fact that it was like within the context of nerd culture was you know not accepted um Mm -hmm. and yet here they are they were creating they were doing god's work um (laughs) so a quote from fic she says a common account of the evolution of slash explains that women fans wanted to explore the possibilities of a romantic or sexual pairing in the context of a long-term complex relationship between equals, a structure mainstream culture was nowhere offering and certainly not on Star Trek. Definitely not. So no, we really won't see like equal relationships of men and women until the nineties in media at all. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's like, we're just, that's just done. It didn't exist. Like Mm -hmm. it was not a thing. Um, and so to explore it on a, uh, like, emotional level, you really had to explore it between two male characters unless you were just, like, fully rewriting a female character. Right. <laughs> um, so the first story that we see with Slash, as I said, is in 1974, was called A Fragment Out of Time by Diane Marchant. Uh, and it was a relationship between Spock and Kirk. 
hot. Love that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like super cagey though. Like the uh, fic never used their names. Oh. Uh, so it's very like touch and go. Like yeah. you kind of can't figure out who it was about. But um, it did include like an illustration by Diane, like with it, that was Kirk and Spock, which is how people were like, oh, oh okay. Because okay. <laughs> um, she refers to one of them as like a logical mind. And then the other one is a partner with a blonde head. Which I was <laughs> like, did somebody say Dramini or... <laughs> Um, and I'll include a photo of this on our Instagram so you can see the, like, drawing that she, the illustration that was included with this. So mm-hmm. people were, like, going buck wild yeah. when this fit came out. Like, it was a big deal. Absolutely. Um, so there was even, like, huge debates within fandom, within, like, the Star Trek fandom about the merits of the story. I'm going to read this quote from Connie Faddis, uh, who wrote in a published letter in the fanzine The Hulken Council about this fic. She said, Diane Marchant wrote an article on the Kirk Spock homosexual love affair premise that's been buzzing around famish conversations for at least a year. The idea is an interesting permutation, but Diane's argument fails to convince because she fails to document her evidence thoroughly. And there's a tone of dirty old broad getting her rocks off, he he, that distracts from the argument and debases the premise. <gasps> Boo! <laughs> Boo, Connie! <laughs> tomato, tomato, tomato. Throw tomatoes. tomatoes. <laughs> what also a fucking bitch. She would like write like racy fanfic and someone would be like, um, your argument is flawed because I don't like it. <laughs> I don't know what it is about this like erotic piece that you're like, I don't know, it just has this air of, like, erotica to it. It's like, yeah, babes. Dirty old broad getting her rocks off. And I'm like, oh, my God, Connie, just say that you've never been fucked and move on. Honestly. So embarrassing. Just, like, snitching on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Diane also later, I think she went on to write other stuff, but she basically said that the story was supposed to be kept between friends and obviously was ended up in print and was sort of like snowballed into the K slash S ship. Oh, okay, okay. Um, she got Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> she said it was upsetting and she wanted it to be <laughs> dead and buried by now. And I'm like, Diane, it's okay, bestie. Like, you started it. Yeah. Like, you just got to own it at some point. Yeah. I'm like, you started a cultural phenomenon. Just be proud of it. Yeah. Instead like, of being we're like, proud of you, Diane, <laughs> if that helps. Um, so. We're going to have our second copyright law break here for a second. Um, we need like a little musical tune. I know, I was just thinking that. I was like the copyright law break tune, uh, which like I said in the last episode, I will unpack the full legality around fan fiction and the legal issues that surround it. But I think it's important to understand how the copyright law changed throughout time because you sort of need an understanding of that to understand different creators' reactions mm-hmm. and the actions that they took. So... 1976, uh, there is a revision to copyright law. So the 1976 Act preempted all previous copyright law and extended the term of protection to life of the author plus 50 years. Which is a huge fucking jump. Yes. Because, like, you know, for the most part, it was, like, 21 or 15 years. Like, very, very short. So this was a huge jump. Yeah, from the time of it was written or published or whatever. Right. Not, like, from life of the author and yeah. then 50 years. Like, right. that's a crazy jump. Um, and we even see it with, like, works for hire. So if someone was writing something for, like, a company, that was protected for 75 years. So huge jumps. Holy shit. Um, the act covered... 
The act covered the following areas as well. Scope and subject matter of works covered, exclusive rights, copyright terms, copyright notice and copyright registration, copyright infringement, fair use, and defenses and remedies to infringement. So with this revision, we get the term fair use for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that YouTube should look up. Yeah, I'm like, mm, <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna unpack fair use so much you're gonna be fucking tired of it. Um, and also uh, the extension of copyright to unpublished work. So oh, copyright right, yes. law at this point is automatic, which is what it is now as well. So you create something, it automatically has copyright law protection. You do not have to like see copy like copyright registration like you would with like a patent. Yeah, it is automatic. Mm-hmm. So that was the big change in the seventies. Like I said, we'll unpack it later. But this was a huge change in copyright law. Yeah. Um. So that leads us into the next big fandom. I'm gonna call this Star Wars Episode One: The Powers That Be Strike Back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so a little air horn sound <laughs> for your great name puns. Thank you. Um, so quick side note, I don't think I defined this fully last time. So I'm going to define it now uh, of what the powers that be means. Mm. So that is a common phrase used within fandom and fanfic culture. Um, so this is a definition from fanlore.org, which is a crazy website. There's so much shit on there. It's insane. Yeah. The powers that be um, or less friendly terms like the idiots in charge is a term used to describe those with creative control or legal control over a media product. Mm. The powers that be is most often applied to corporate owners and encompasses the entire chain of individuals with legal or creative input or veto. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So not a very nice term. No. <laughs> it's not good to be called the powers that be. No. Uh, but that is what the man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally it's, you know, the man. So up until the release of Star Wars, fan fiction had sort of a positive view within fandom culture. Yeah. Which is, you know, what we're going to talk about for the next couple decades. So as it relates to people outside of fandom. We don't care. They're not cool. They're right. boring and The opinion, stupid. like, doesn't matter because they're not, they don't have a full understanding of it. So the opinion is always, like, fanfic bad because penis or something. Yeah. Like, something's it's really dumb. Yeah. They're like why write sex scene when you could um, not do that? They're like, why enjoy art and make more art when you could do job? Yeah. <laughs> do for I'd job. Try work. Try try that. Hmm? Why, why so me generation? Do uh, enlist in war. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my ancestors weren't writing fanfic. They were writing gun. So their opinions don't matter. We're not going to talk about them until like 9-11. So, you know, leave that in the back burner. So within fandom culture, it sounds like a joke, but it is true. Uh, we, we will get to 9-11. Um, <laughs> you probably started this series having, you know, just a basic general idea of what we were going to talk about. And 9-11 was not on your bingo card. I'll tell you that for free. Oh my gosh. Okay, so uh, so within fandom culture, fan fiction had a general positive view. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there were some people who were really judgy about it, but for the most part, the judgment came as like slash fic, things that were out of the norm, things that were PG-13 or over, Ooh. you know, like yeah. sex scenes, getting crazy. They're kissing. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> just prudes. But this would all change with Star Wars. So Star Wars, A New Hope, the first one came out in 1977. This movie was an instant hit. Yes. Um, everywhere. <laughs> and, of course, a lot of fans of Star Trek were fans of Star Wars. It makes sense. Of course. Um, they sort of overlap in themes and fun sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um I am just going to say a disclaimer here. I know there is a big difference. I know that, especially in the 70s, they fucking hated each other. Like, there were people who were Star Trek purists and thought Star Wars being released destroyed Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And people who thought Star Wars actually helped Star Trek, which it did because Star Wars becoming popular was the reason that Star Trek, the movie, was made Mm -hmm. during the 70s. Um, Right. So I'm not going to address the (laughs) fandom wars because I don't care. Yeah. And as of now, they are very much similar yeah. uh, in my mind. It's Obviously, like the people who have, like, console wars, like yeah. PS, like, you know, PlayStations versus Xbox. It's like, I know you have your reasons. I don't care. Right. It's like, it's fine, um, but it's it's not really relevant. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm like, they probably would be on the same level if Star Wars was not purchased by Disney. T- Disney took Star Wars to the next level. But they were both very popular. So... A lot of Star Trek fans, you know, Star Trek was not on the air for a very long time. So by the time Star Wars comes out, I think a lot of people also needed new content. Yeah. And content was few and far between. It wasn't like today where you could, like, watch 50 shows and still have, like, you know, 2,500 more that people are telling you to watch. Right. Like, there's so much content that it's absurd. Mm -hmm. Really a limited amount of stuff. So Mm -hmm. we get a lot of these Star Trek fans who are really um, experienced in editing and publishing fanzines joining the Star Wars fandom. So the first Star Wars fanzine was published only a month after the release of the movie. Wow. So they were getting these out like Someone right was writing away. notes in the theater. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, write here we go. Down, write that down. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the big ones, The Force was a giant one, uh, which was mostly meta and art, which just going to give like a general explanation of meta because like it's kind of important it is sort of a i don't know it has like a a big meaning to it Mm -hmm. um but generally meta refers to creative work that is referring to itself yeah um so self-referential basically Mm -hmm. um i feel like the only way to really describe meta is through examples and it'll become clearer when we get to the 2000s and we sort of see meta fanfics and stuff but just know that it it basically is it's about the fandom yeah it's about the original content yeah so force was mostly meta and art and then hyperspace was uh, you know it was a lot of meta and art but it also contained fan fiction so they didn't Mm -hmm. have like fan fiction specific ones but like initially but there were ones right away that did have fanfic so star wars was the first movie that ever really became a franchise. You know, it wasn't really a thing before Star Wars. We never saw, like, this huge franchise, you know, worldwide thing that it was, like, way bigger than just the original content. Mm. And with the idea of franchise, we get capitalism ruins everything, uh, merchandise. So merchandise becomes a huge, huge part of Star Wars and Lucasfilms and their bank account. Um, You know, they're... They had merchandise for fucking everything. I think there was like a Carrie Fisher quote where it's like, you're not really famous until you have a Pez dispenser made out of your character or Mm -hmm. something. You know, it's like 
merchandise was the move with this. Like, they were making serious fucking money on this. That's yeah. why <laughs> Disney bought them, because Disney is the king of merchandising. Yeah, um, that's, like, all they do. <laughs> so, with the rise in merchandising, we also get the Star Wars novels. So, a lot of movies will have star like novels along with them, which are basically just, like, someone turned the movie into a novel, which I don't really understand the purpose of. Uh, that is a thing. But within Star Wars, there was also essentially paid fan fiction. So these hmm. were books published by other authors that were canon, like decidedly canon by Lu- George Lucas and huh. Lucasfilms. And so they were being published and Lucasfilms was making money off of them. So that was very much like their own fan fiction that they're fucking making money off of. It is canon, but it is also a fanfic. Yeah. So they started with From the Adventures of Luke Skywalker, which was actually published before the release of the first film. Um, it oh. was credited to George Lucas, but was written by a ghostwriter named Alan Dean Foster, who went on to write other novels within the universe. Um, so they were doing this from the get-go, writing these novels. Like, wow. it, it happened right away. So these were essentially like expanded universe-type stories. Sometimes they would relate to the main characters, the characters from the movies, um, and sometimes it would just be new original characters. Star Wars is a massive, massive universe, basically infinitely big. Yeah. So it can so many things can exist and still be considered canon because they do not affect anything else. Yeah. Um, of course, after Lucasfilm was purchased by Disney, these were rebranded from an extended universe to the Star Wars Legends and were declared non-canonical by the by Disney, like to the franchise. So basically, you know, they were canon up until 2014 when Disney was like, they're not canon anymore, which is when they were starting to make the new movies because they're like... We're not even messing with that. It's yeah. a lot to have to interact with canon. I'm yeah, sure they they're were like, like mm, no. we're just trying to use this for the cash cow. We I'm don't done. really give a shit about like doing research. Right. <laughs> it's like uh, we don't want the person who's making this movie to have to read every single extended universe book to be able to write a new movie. Mm-hmm. Um that would be crazy. Yeah. So since... But, you know, maybe they should have because some of the shit that I'm they've come out with... Maybe one of those directors that was, like, making stuff who, like, <clears throat> maybe had, like, some bad choices because, like, he didn't understand how to, like, write theme um, could have, like, you know, maybe he could have benefited from a little bit more research. Yeah, like, one specific one that, um, you know, made a movie uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Maybe one that also made a Star Trek movie. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Um, Whoever could it be? <laughs> don't know. I don't know who I would possibly be talking about. Um, so because George Lucas was making fucking bank off of publishing his own fan fiction, he obviously did not want people writing fanfic. No. He was like, that's my money. Yeah. He's and I like, need it now. Pay me. Yeah. He's like, I deserve it. I, I, I'm just going to say now, if you're a big George Lucas fan, this is going to include, our entire series is going to include a lot of George Lucas slander. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of have to. George slander in general. Yeah. I have a lot to say about some particular some, Georges. Yeah. George, I don't fuck with Georges. <laughs> I have not met a George that hasn't gotten on my fucking last nerve. Okay. <laughs> so if you're a George out there, get your shit together. Yeah, I'm like, you better watch out because I'm coming for you. <laughs> um, so fanzines generally were kind of discouraged within like, the entire fandom, but, um, you know, Lucasfilms didn't go after them. It just, like, they were kind of like, that's fine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but they were really discouraged from publishing fan fiction and especially fan fiction that was explicit in nature. Mm. Um, of course, they still did because, like, explicit content 
is going to exist, like sex sells always. And yeah. a lot of times that's what people want to read with these characters, especially in like kids movies like Star Wars, where it's like, that's never going to happen in the movie. And people want to explore that. It's very normal to read smut. Like it's not that weird. It's not that weird. Um, so obviously explicit content still existed within the fandom, but it really was not like a big thing. And, um, you know, Lucasfilms was very against like explicit content within fandom so we need like a corny meter yeah (laughs) it's like how corny is this (laughs) um so keep in mind as we move into this uh as we move into the 80s the relationship between george lucas lucas films and the fandom was very tumultuous yeah George did not have the opinion of Gene Roddenberry, who loved his fans. Uh, it kind of seemed like George Lucas was like, I love my fans because they give me money and yeah. not necessarily loving them for people who loved his content. Right. You know, it was it, it was kind of already like, I don't know. He had a lot of rules for how people were supposed to enjoy his content, which Lucas, get it together. So um, stupid. <laughs> so October 1980 at least leading up to that. And in that month, fans were researching and writing articles and essays about the legality of fan fiction. So it's the first time we really see like the legality considered. One of these was written by Carol Malarski titled the quest for legitimacy, copyright practices and possible infringement in fan fiction. Quite a name. Um, They, all of these like essays and stuff, people are always titling them with like the longest fucking thing. Mm-hmm. So in this essay, she basically talks about how Lucasfilms had announced at FanCon, so it wasn't really an official announcement, but it was sort of like a through the grapevine kind of announcement, that they weren't planning to take any action against Star Wars fanfic, legal action, as long as they were not X-rated fix. X-rated was a word that they use, like Star Wars. Oh, uh, okay. Like Lucasfilms used the term X-rated. Um, so according to a Star Wars fanzine editor, Beverly Clark, who wrote a letter to the author of this essay, Carol Malarski, uh, she said, Lucasfilms is keeping tabs on people doing Star Wars zines and satires. Lucas himself had let it be known that he did not like X-rated material. Specifically, he did not like gay stories, and he would personally hang the first person to write or print a gay Star Wars story. We have reached maximum corniness. Oh, Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, Just, George, come on. Uh, so Lucasfilms, as you know, she said, was keeping tabs on people who were publishing this stuff. Um, and by keeping tabs, they basically meant that they would buy four copies of every single Star Wars related fanzine that was published, which is really wild to me. Well, that's just like so embarrassing that you're like basically supporting then the thing that you say that you hate by like. You could just ignore it, right? And not support them. But you're, like, buying copies of these things. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> like, how, really like, is. self-possessed and, like, obsessive do you have to be to, like, do that shit? This is the first time we see, like, true ego in creation. Mm-hmm. So 1981, a year later, there is a fic called Slow Boat to Bespin that is published in a fanzine called Guardian. This fic had a strong PG-13 rating and was about Han and Leia having sex for the first time. Hmm. Canon relationship. Yeah. This, like, fanfic was really not very racy, even for the time, Uh, especially now when you look at shit now. Mm. Um, And it actually was sent to Lucasfilm a year in advance to get permission, which I'm like, that's crazy that people used to do. It was very much a a different time within fandom culture. You know, 
people sent these stories like directly to Lucasfilms often. But they, I don't know that they ever got a direct response. It seemed kind of convoluted about who said what. Uh, but not long after it was published, the editors of The Guardian, as well as a ton of other editors of fanzines, received a letter from Howard Rothman, the aso- Associate General Counsel for Lucasfilms. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph from this. This situation is tolerable to Lucasfilm only so long as the materials published are not harmful to the spirit of the Star Wars saga. The publication of Slowboat to Bespin and the threat of publishing similar articles has caused us to reevaluate our policy, and I can assure you that it will no longer be safe for publishers such as yourself to feel immune from enforcement action by Lucasfilm. I think you should seriously consider your responsibility to Lucasfilm, the copyright owner of these materials, and to the many loyal fans whose high regard for the Star Wars saga is based in part on the wholesome character that everyone associates with it. (laughs) I was wrong. We could get cornier. Howard. uh, Oh my God. That's so embarrassing. Also, I can't even imagine like not even sending a a cease and desist letter, but being like, it is, it will no longer be safe. And I'm like, do something about it, bitch. Yeah. Also, I love the threat of publishing more like things like yeah. this one. I'm like, holding a gun to Lucas's head. I'm gonna publish a fanzine. You can't stop me. <laughs> Where I think about it now with like modern fanfic, or you just publish it on a site like whenever you make it, and that's just like where it goes. But people were like going the extra mile to like ask permission. They were like, "Please, George, may I have a little art?" And he was like, "Fuck you!" He's like, "How dare you threaten me in my own home?" <laughs> It's like, put the gun down. Crying like, and throwing up. He's <laughs> like, please, Sir George, I do not possess a firearm. <laughs> he's like, police, help. <laughs> so fucking embarrassing. Like, I get, like, visceral, visceral secondhand embarrassment from this letter. I, it, like, makes me so uncomfy, like, reading it every time. I'm like, oh, my God, George. Like, no, no, like, don't do that. And also, like, the, to imagine a lawyer saying this, oh, my God, I would obliterate them. And yeah. I am not even good at law. Like, I am mm. not taking the bar. I am a fucking moron. And if a lawyer ever said this to me, I would laugh in their fucking face. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. And they said it's no longer safe for you to publish. It will no longer be safe for you to publish things like this. I would be like, pull up, say it to my face. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? What, are we going to fist fight? I'll meet you in the ring. Like, oh my God. I'm like, that's so fucking embarrassing. Yeah. That is the most, like, nothing threat from a fucking lawyer. Yeah, and it's, like, very clear. I think that's the one thing that law school actually has taught me is, like, you know, we're all, like, lawyers are supposed to have, like, zealous advocacy for their, can- uh, you know, for their client, blah, blah, blah. Um, but... You can definitely tell when a lawyer is, like, saying something because their client wants them to say it. And when Mm -hmm. a lawyer believes, like, what they're saying, like, it's coming from them, like, the animosity. Yeah. And that is definitely coming from Howard. It's definitely coming from George as well. But you can tell he also, like... like, personally offended. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, calm down. Right. It's very much like... (laughs) It's not your art. Drinking the Flavor-Aid kind of bullshit where he's yeah. talking about the the character that everybody associates with Star Wars. Like, this bullshit that he's, like, so far up his own ass. Like, licking the boots of fucking, you know, George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Like, this... He is just lost in the sauce. Like, truly. <laughs> he really is. And so it's, like, writing something like this as I'm, like... You know you can just hit on George if you want to. Yeah. Like, you can just, just, like, send him a love letter. Like, you didn't need to send this to us and publicly (laughs) embarrass yourself like this. 
Oh my god. Like you you're posting all this on main. Like you really are. Like keep that on your Finsta. Truly. I'm like, <laughs> what is this? Howard? Like you didn't give it another read through. Maybe read it out loud next time and see if maybe if you said this. If somebody would punch you directly in the face. Yeah. Like, I know it's the 80s, but Jesus fucking Christ. Are you a lawyer or not? This is awful. Did my lawyer <laughs> so unprofessional like this? I would get them disbarred. I would be like, <laughs> no, they do not deserve to be a lawyer ever again. Did you read this sentence? I'm and women are supposed to be too emotional. Did you read that? Read are you going to cry about it, Howard? He's like, if you keep doing this, I am going to cry. Have you considered that? And your dumb little fancy that you make me cry about it. First draft was covered in tears. <laughs> oh my god, it's so fucking funny. Oh, that's so, hilarious. So, like I said, a ton of fanzines received either the same or very similar um, things. Uh, <laughs> in uh, oh, that's so funny too. It's not even the one that published it. Like just any of them. Yeah, then like, it's they like we're all receiving. Like the fuck we fucking- gotta do with me? Yeah, it's like why do you say fuck me for? Like I don't understand. <laughs> so funny um we also like there was a ton of these i was reading through some of them uh like i said on fanlore.org they have a huge breakdown of this entire situation and like every single letter you could imagine it's so long but the one that really stood out to me was this uh specific paragraph from a letter that was to warped space um and a few other fanzines from maureen garrett who was the director of the star wars fan club which at first i was like is that a separate thing? But I, I, she worked for Lucasfilm, so the Star Wars fan club was a Lucasfilm thing. That makes sense. Um, so she and she is uh, Maureen is a is a bitch. Um, so <laughs> well, she, her name's Maureen. I mean, so what do there you go. Um, so she wrote uh, to these several, you know, fanzines that it was not okay that they publish X-rated content, um, X-rated fanfic, and in it she had this uh, lovely, lovely paragraph. Yes. Um, she is not a lawyer, but she also shouldn't be writing letters. <laughs> She's not even a fucking lawyer. She's Anyways. just like some lady. Aside from being illegal, there are many reasons why Lucasfilm LTD does not want either explicit sex or X-rated Star Wars stories. Our main concern is now, can you prevent underage enthusiasts from reading your fanzine containing Star Wars pornography? If the parent of this underage fan found his or her child reading such questionable material, how might this parent react? The effects of such an angry parent going to the PTA, their church, to the local Local news, or even the National Enquirer could tarnish the good name of Lucasfilm. We are very proud of our reputation and resent this attempt to darken it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that's so fucking funny. (laughs) I'm like, can you imagine, like, Stephen King going to read, like, Pennywise... Omegaverse fanfic Mm -mm. and then being like what about the children (laughs) (laughs) not the PTA moms they're coming after us I'm like Maureen have you been assaulted by the PTA like I'm gonna be honest with you the PTA is not a threat yeah and it's not a threat to a mega fandom and mega franchise that is Star Wars yeah the PTA has never been a threat to Star Wars ever ever um, do you think that the PTA is one organization? <laughs> like, does she have kids? Does she know that the PTA is, like, just for her elementary school? Does she think that it's, like, the fucking, you know, secret society bullshit where yeah. they're all interconnected and, like, the most powerful organization? Or, like, the National Enquirer, like, where, like, who gives a shit? 
Um, and if you pub- like if you wrote this to like a news source, they would be like, "Whoa, wow, bad." Somebody wrote story. Like, whoa. That was crazy. like not published in a real book and it's just like in a magazine. Like, you know, <laughs> my 13 year old read it. They can't know about sex. I love the idea of someone like making like a conspiracy theory, like full length movie documentary about how the PTAs of uh, schools are like the Illuminati. <laughs> Oh my god. They control the world. <laughs> the PTA are lizard people and they're coming after us. I'm like the PTA cannot even organize one fundraiser without they breaking out an inner fighting that like destroys the entire organization. The most evil place I think you can be on earth is a PTA run bake sale. <laughs> it's like the most sinister energy amongst each other that they <laughs> implode. Like none of it goes outward because they can't. They can't have that focus. <laughs> Oh my god. Um <laughs> my mom was a PTA president. Okay, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. You know, um, you know how many parents came up to me, a 10-year-old or a, maybe a 9-year-old, I think at that point, just being like, "Where is your mother? I have to speak to her about Colleen." And it's like, "I don't give a shit about yeah. your weird drama." I'm like, "Aren't you an adult? Get a job." Like, like what is this? Why are you here at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday? Right. I'm like, why don't you just like <laughs> and it's go a lot and of eat men. some bread or do something and maybe you'll calm down a little bit, you fucking weirdo. Yeah, absolutely. And people, I think there's the like, you know, PTA mom um caricature, which is still pretty true. You know, the moms are pretty bad, but the dads, right. they live for the trauma. <laughs> PTA dads are like the worst people on earth and they will physically assault anyone in their path oh my god um maureen like i said is known for her bad opinions um in 1983 when they were working on like advertising for the new star wars movie uh she was quoted as saying on behalf of lucasfilm i want you to know how much we appreciate your enthusiasm support and incredible talents regarding the star wars saga which you so lovingly share through your fanzines. We consider you our friends, and mind you, and mind you, even the best of friends disagree occasionally. Referring to uh, the fucking bullshit of them sending these fanzines, these nothing threats. She's so stupid. <laughs> I was like, this is embarrassing for you, and to be like, we're friends. Like, oh my god, we're best friends. Oh my god, why do you need to have a parasocial race with? <laughs> A parasocial relationship with me, Maureen. Like, fucking Jesus, we're not friends. We're not friends, okay? Get your own fucking friends. Fucking so weird. Maybe this is why you don't have fucking friends. It's because you're always threatening people. Honestly, I'm like, Jesus, Maureen. So, in 1981, also, like, a a couple months after these are all sent, the editor of the fanzine Imperial Entanglement submitted a non-explicit slash story to Lucasfilm, and they responded with, We're terribly sorry, but we cannot authorize homosexual expression of love among the characters created by George Lucas, and this controversial subject must remain detached from the world created by Lucasfilm in order to preserve the innocence even (gasps) Imperial crew members must be imagined to have. (gasps) Um, Imperial crew members (laughs) need to have innocence? So, I, you know, listen, the X-rated figs, they're a fucking red herring. They've been a red herring since the fucking beginning. It has always been about homophobia. It's always about the gays. Because. always about us. Something I left out earlier. 
as I was telling you, mm. <laughs> a twist a to the twist. story, is that it wasn't just Slow Boat to Bespin, a straight PG-13 fic that caused this reaction. Oh. Um, it was a fan fiction published in The True Force, which it is a Swedish fanzine. It wasn't even in English. Oh. Um, very few people were reading it about um, Darth Vader sexually torturing Han Solo. Um, Which would happen. Yeah, I'm like, that's hot, first of all. But second of all... That's based in reality. I'll tell you that for free. (laughs) It was always about the fucking gays. It's always about the gays. I'm like, slow boat to Bespin was a fucking false flag. Like, they were saying that this was the problem. Yeah. And it never was. Never was. Oh, because they just hate gay people. Is fucking homophobic. Yeah. Um, And it doesn't matter. What do you think about that, Howard? Are you going to defend this man now? After yes. you've been trying to suck his dick for years? Probably. Ugh. You know, probably. Yeah. Um, And the fact that they think Imperial members are so innocent that they wouldn't be having gay sex uh, is so unbelievably offensive. Yeah. That I hope Maureen gets hit by a car. Yeah. Because that, even in the fucking 80s, is the worst thing I have ever heard. And it makes me, like, viscerally angry. Yeah. Like, it makes me so mad that they would be like, yeah, these mass murderers, these fucking killers. Yeah. They're committing genocide. They're doing this fucking bullshit. Yeah. They are more innocent than than gay gay people. people. Just, like, existing. Jesus fucking Christ. Fuck you, George. Fuck you, Maureen. Fuck Lucasfilms. Fucking bullshit. Uh. Um... So, because of this, this whole situation, fan fiction goes from being pretty accepted within fandom culture to being very marginalized mm-hmm. within the like rest of activities within fandom. And it was considered, you know, taboo at this point. So, George Lucas single-handedly fucked over fan fiction because he hated gay people. Um, and it also, like, <sighs> really disconnected the audience from the show and film creators. So, like... Fanfic authors obviously became way less likely to share their work with anyone except other fans. Like, we really see the break between creator and um, fans, mm. you know, between the powers that be and the people that love this content. Yeah. Um, this is where that riff starts, and it is going to carry through for the rest of the series over and over again. You know, Lucas, George Lucas never loved his fans. I, never. No. Like, it was not a thing. Um you know, he only cared about the money. He only cared about the money. Exactly. I would also like to say for you to pay attention to this entire story and mm-hmm. the fact that it was episode one, because yep. all I'm going to say is that karma always gets its bit. Yeah. Karma always <laughs> comes back around. She's coming. She's devising her little plan mm-hmm. right now, but she'll be on her way back mm-hmm. in a few episodes from now. Yep. So with that, that is the end of this episode. We will pick back up next time uh, in the 90s. Hell the yeah. The creation of the internet, the spread of the internet, um, some big changes to copyright law, a new world. And overall, a fascinating decade. It's yes. going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Ooh. For sure. All right, guys. Thanks so much for hanging out. Check back in with us in the near future. We are going to be out of town for a little bit so episode releases are going to be a little bit wonky bonks like we're always you know very on schedule we so are very super on schedule like this is so <laughs> out of the blue um it's so crazy but yeah you just it'll come when it comes mm-hmm. and we'll let you know yeah. so all, all right guys bye bye the podcast rejects is a gamer frauds network production find us on instagram at the podcast rejects 
For early access to all Gamer Frauds Network content and a ton of exclusive perks, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash gamerfrauds.